0: I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please, Go On. Our guest this week is Robert Kagan. His latest essay is a giant red flag. It's one of our most read opinion pieces this year. A stark warning and a call for action.
1: The United States is heading into its greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War, with a reasonable chance over the next three to four years of incidents of mass violence, a breakdown of federal authority, and the division of the country into warring red and blue enclaves.
0: Kagan worked in Ronald Reagan's State Department and advised the presidential campaigns of John McCain and Mitt Romney. Now he's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing columnist for The Post. Here's our conversation. The piece has generated so much conversation, so much reaction. For those who haven't read it yet, and everyone should, why is our constitutional crisis already here?
1: Well, it just seems that there's a, A a pretty concerted and organized effort on the part of supporters of Donald Trump, but I suppose you could say more broadly supporters of the Republican Party now are undertaking a real effort to set up the conditions in which it might be possible to steal the election in 2024 uh, merely by having state election officials or state legislatures uh, essentially, invalidate a vote charging fraud, which would then throw the country into a kind of constitutional crisis. If if there is really no way to determine uh, in a way that's acceptable to everyone who won the election, and when when that happens, I think you can easily envision you know protests from on both sides, uh, possibly violent protests, given the track record already, uh, leaving the president and governors with difficult decisions about whether to send in the National Guard, etc. But we will be in a kind of constitutional limbo at that point. And I think that's a deliberate goal of uh, certainly Trump, his supporters, and uh, a significant portion of the Republican Party.
0: You write in the piece that we're running out of time to do the reforms that would prevent this from happening. Why is the window narrowing, and why is it so small?
1: Well, a lot of it depends on what one thinks is going to happen in the twenty twenty two elections. But if it's even a normal uh, midterm election in a in a president's first term, those those elections usually go to the opposition party, and so it's it's pretty easy to imagine. Uh, One or both of the houses switching to the Republican majority, which I think would pretty much shut down any hope that we have that Congress will legislate in ways that will safeguard the elections. That's why we have a a window that's really, you know, it it lasts until about January 2023 to pass these um, these kinds of measures.
0: One of the things that's striking is sort of your confidence that Trump essentially will run again, will be the Republican nominee. Why are you so confident that other potential 2024 challengers won't gain an emotional hold in the party or be able to depose Trump?
1: Well, obviously, we're dealing with uncertainties here, so I'm not, you know, no one can predict with certainty what's going to happen. The situation that politicians face right now is that they have to take fairly drastic action with an uncertain future. And that that's a very hard thing for people to do. Uh, in my case, I just feel like, first of all, the polls show that other potential candidates, whether it's Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or Tucker Carlson or any of the other people that you might, Nikki Haley, they're not even close to being in the running as far as the polls show. Trump has got massive leads there. And I just think it's pretty clear that he still controls the rank and file and uh, and Congress. So if you just look at the way Republicans have responded to the whole January sixth fiasco. Initially, I think people like Mitch McConnell and others thought and hoped that the January sixth affair would be sufficiently discrediting of Trump that they could uh, that they could pull the party away from him. And now it's abundantly clear that Republicans have chosen to defend the actions on January 6th, to to make martyrs out of both the people who died and the people who have been arrested. It's driven the party closer to Trump in terms of serving his interests.
0: And there was some reporting by my colleagues on the news side this week about Trump wanting to announce already that he's going to run uh, and being talked out of it by his advisors. Clearly, he wants to run again. It does feel here in Washington and elsewhere among Republican elites on the Hill that there is this sense that he's not going to do it, that he's not going to end up pulling the trigger and, and getting in again. You write in your essay that appeasement always begins with underestimation. You saw the threat Trump posed earlier than most. In 2016, you announced you were leaving the Republican Party and you wouldn't support Trump. And you said, this is how fascism comes to America. Why do you think People, especially those who don't like Trump, are so inclined to miss this. And why are they taking their eye off the ball?
1: Republicans are trying to avoid having to make the risky decision to come out against Trump. So if they're basically opposed to Trump, but afraid of the consequences of coming out against Trump, and those consequences are pretty clear, everyone who does come out against Trump Uh, winds up sleeping with the fishes as far as the Republican Party is concerned. So therefore, the, the normal human psychological response to that is to hope that you won't be confronted by this, And so at every period, there's a different kind of wishful thinking. Well, he couldn't really try to steal the election and he couldn't really try to pull off a coup. Mike Pence certainly wouldn't seriously have considered, you know, uh, doing what the Eastman memo suggested. And of course, we've learned that those things all turned out not to be true. So now the wishful thinking is Trump won't run or he won't get the nomination. And that lets everyone off the hook. It would be absurd for him to announce before the midterm elections. That's not when campaigns normally <laughs> are announced. <laughs> Trump's not a normal, <laughs> but yes, you're right. Right, but be, I mean, so yeah. the normal time for him to announce is after the 2022 elections. And by the way, if Republicans have taken one of the houses, he can announce with a kind of victory, you know, it'll be a kind of victory speech. So I read his saying, well, I w- you know, I wanted to announce now, but they won't let me. That's just kabuki. I think that's just a way of saying to Nikki Haley and others, you know, watch it.
0: You really single out in your piece the basically anti-Trump Republican lawmakers, the seven Republican senators who voted for impeachment uh, or voted for conviction. Ten House Republicans voted to impeach. You say that they're enabling the insurrection and that it's upon these Republicans the fate of the republic rests. What advice would you give to these anti-Trump Republicans who are in denial, the the Mitt Romneys, you call them the constitutional Republicans.
1: That is another sort of attribute of appeasement. It's like people who don't want to fight Hitler, for instance, in 1936, hope that he would ultimately see reason. and, And maybe, of course, he reoccupied the Rhineland and it's German territory. There's a million reasons why. But unfortunately, at each stage... Uh, that they sort of hope for the best from him, you're missing opportunities actually to stop him. So that that's kind of where we are right now. Now, you know, for some of these, the risk they're taking is that their political future in the Republican Party will be over. That is the risk. I must say, I consider that in normal human circumstances, I would consider that to be an acceptable risk to take if you thought that democracy in the United States was really at risk. Some people... Have given their lives, so to forego the last Senate term that you might have gotten strikes me as not requiring enormous courage. But then, when you're talking about politicians, obviously uh, it requires more courage than than most of them are likely to show. And so, all I'm suggesting is take this to the point where you actually can do some good. Unfortunately, the vote to convict on impeachment had no actual effect. But things that Republican senators could do right now in terms of supporting the legislation that would be needed to protect our elections in 2022 and 2024, uh, those are actions that they could take right now.
0: A lot of the Republicans who did vote for impeachment have sort of tried to back off that vote as Trump has consolidated his control. Tribalism is just a hell of a drug but it feels like it's worse than it used to be. It feels like party identity binds people more strongly in the nineties and the eighties Democrats in the South were becoming Republicans all the time. Sitting senators wasn't that big of a deal. Now it feels like these partisan ties that it wouldn't have been seen as betrayal the way a party switcher would be seen by partisans today. Why do you think that tribalism has become so much stronger.
1: Partisanship is not a new phenomenon and you know in the I just remember learning about how in the 1890s it would say in people's obituaries whether they were democrat or republican it would say on their tombstones democrat or republican and and so the idea of partisanship is not new and even in the 1790s There were bitter, bitter partisan disputes between supporters of Jefferson and supporters of Hamilton, and they got quite ugly. It also used to be the case, even in times of high partisanship, that each of the branches was very jealous of its prerogatives. And so even a Congress dominated by the party of the person in the White House did not want to cede congressional powers and was generally pretty quick to jump on a president that they thought, even if it was from their own party, was exceeding executive authority. So just as an example, Democrats were almost as vociferous in attacking Franklin Roosevelt's effort to pack the court as much as Republicans were because they didn't like the idea of a president being able to do that. And certainly in the late 19th century, Congresses were dominant, I think what's changed, and and again, this is something that I think the founders did not anticipate, was that party loyalty would exceed branch loyalty, if you know what I mean. Maybe this was an inevitable consequence of a party system, but in any case, it's not what the founders had in mind. And most importantly, it's not something the founders actually created a check against. Their checks that they assumed would work would be that Congress, regardless of party, would be jealous of its prerogatives and eager to rein in an executive that they thought was out of control. And that just hasn't happened.
0: We'll be right back after a short break. You write in the essay, a Trump victory in 2024 is likely to mean at least the temporary suspension of American democracy. Stephanie Grisham, the former White House communications director and Melania Trump chief of staff has been promoting her book this week. And she's saying if Trump wins again, he's going to bring on all the people implicated in January 6th, people who won't check him internally. I think we all sort of have a sense of how Trump would wield power if he gets a second term. And My question for you is what if Trump doesn't need to cheat next time? Our conversation has been premised on this idea that voting reforms would help prevent the theft of the election. But what if Trump runs again and wins fair and square?
1: I don't rule out the possibility that that Trump could win a a fair and actually fair election. Unfortunately, You know, and if the American people choose that, they choose it. But unfortunately, I still think that even if he wins a fair election, we'd have to be worried about how he's going to govern. And the only sort of legal assessment of Trump's behavior in the White House in his first term was the impeachment trial, and he was exonerated. And therefore, if you're him, you haven't been told that anything you did in your first term was wrong. And therefore, it seems that you would not only do those things again, but you might, you might sort of push the envelope a little bit. When he came into office as president, he pretty much had to rely on mostly the Republicans who were already around, many of whom didn't, hadn't supported him, didn't like him, et cetera, et cetera. If he is reelected in 2024, he's not going to have that problem. He's going to have people who know exactly what they're getting into. They know exactly what he wants to do. And he is not going to have the problem this time of having an attorney general who doesn't do what he says when he asks him to do it. So it'll be an even more compliant, and I would say there'll be an eagerness to go out and do what everyone assumes Trump will want to do.
0: You allude to the Nazi movement twice in your piece, and I want to discuss these analogies because they are really important. The first is you say, in the piece, Republican elders disliked Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Democrats more than they did Trump, similar to how German conservatives accommodated Adolf Hitler, in large part because they opposed the socialists more than they opposed the Nazis, who, after all, shared many of the basic prejudices. And then the the second illusion in the essay is while it might be shocking to learn that normal, decent Americans can support a violent assault on the Capitol. It shows that Americans as a people are not as exceptional as their founding principles and institutions. Europeans who joined fascist movements in the 1920s and 1930s were also from the middle classes. No doubt many of them were good parents and neighbors too. People do things as part of a mass movement that they would not do as individuals, especially if they're convinced that others are out to destroy their way of life. Can you talk about those two analogies in your decision to invoke the... Comparison to Nazi Germany,
1: I'm highly aware of the differences between Germany in the 1920s and America today. Germany, of course, had a, almost no tradition of democracy, uh, and and it was very easy for Germany to sort of rebound back to some form of authoritarianism. I don't think that's the case in the United States, and there is only one historical tradition. So therefore. I don't want to I don't want to say where it's it, it's Weimar America, okay? Let me just be clear about that. I mostly w- wanted to just make the what I think is an obvious point and it's not true just in Weimar, but that's the best illustration of it that that people have made this mistake before. And it's very easy and understandable to make and we all, you know, are critical of the German conservatives, etc., but I'm not sure that we're uh, honest enough to see ourselves in them <laughs> and and to try to look at the world the way they saw it. Hitler, to them, was a clown. Uh, you know, he was a low-class, ne'er-do-well with a, with a great megaphone. And for these conservatives who'd been running Germany for decades under different regimes, it was inconceivable to them that they could possibly lose power to this guy But they did like the fact that he was attacking the communists and the socialists and the people that they were really upset about and had been upset about for a long time. And so they kind of, you know, overlooked the danger that they were creating and take Hitler out of it. That's a very normal human phenomenon. And I think that the reason to bring up that historical analogy is to say, but this is where that very normal human phenomenon can lead if you're not extremely careful. And I feel like in a certain sense, we are sleepwalking forward the way they were in in Weimar. Wishful thinking, denial, being more motivated by anger and your prejudices than by what you think may be good for the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: What similarities do you see between what's happening here now with Trumpism and what's happening in other democracies as well? Obviously, we've seen sort of democracy and recession retreat, but in, within democracies, we've seen other Trump-ish figures emerging. What similarities do you see and what does it say about the global moment?
1: We've lived in a world for decades and decades now where It was the end of history and democracy was the only option. We really couldn't imagine anybody willingly choosing something other than democracy. We could imagine dictators imposing their will on an unwilling people, but we've never seen a people turn against democracy for whatever reason. But that was, in fact, very common in the 1930s. The the idea that democracy was either the right way or the winning way was was very much in doubt in the 1930s, just the way, you know, now sometimes you see even very good liberal democratic type people saying, boy, I wish we were more like China. We could really get something done. We have been going through one of these periodic and I think inevitable questioning about whether liberal democracy is really what people want. If you look at Hungary today, sure, Orban has made himself a dictator, but he couldn't have done what he did if he didn't hadn't at least appealed to a significant portion of the Hungarian population, most of whom I think, you know, a significant portion still supports him because he identified, quote unquote, liberalism as an enemy to their way of life and, you know, frightening them with immigration, et cetera, et cetera. So we are witnessing a global phenomenon that we have seen before. And again, that I think is inevitable. And we have to recognize that liberalism does not answer all human needs. And in some respects, it sort of dramatically does not answer them. And and since it's such a basic human instinct to find protection and security in in tribe, race, religion, and not liberalism, uh, that we should not be surprised that we're seeing this kind of uh, backlash. Now, it's a little surprising to see Americans trotting off to hold their conferences in Hungary because they love Viktor Orban so much. Uh, that is quite a statement. And that, by the way, is something that you would not have seen in the 1930s. No conservative organization decided to hold its conference in Rome under Mussolini, that would have been considered, you know, a bridge too far. But apparently today, that seems to be a perfectly reasonable thing for conservatives to do.
0: America has, for so long throughout our history, been the indispensable nation. You wrote a fantastic book in 2018 called The Jungle Grows Back. And America is usually the force promoting liberal democracy in the world. How does... Trumpism and our struggles with it here at home affect our ability to lead in the world? And how do we manage that with this ongoing Trumpist threat?
1: Well, it certainly, you know, it raises doubts in the minds of people around the world. I always want to emphasize that uh, by and large, most countries and most peoples around the world care less about how wonderful the United States is than whether, is, whether it's there to help them or not. I mean, everybody is a human being. Everyone wants to know whether if somebody's going to pull a gun on them, is somebody going to help me? I don't actually think the United States in many respects is a conscious promoter of liberal democracy as much as it is just The fact that if the world's most powerful country is a liberal democracy, this has an effect on the decision-making processes of other countries and other peoples around the world, whereas if the strongest power in the world is an authoritarian government, that is going to lead to a very different set of calculations within and between countries around the world. It'll just be a different world than we've lived in since 1900, really, not just since World War II.
0: You write attacks on Trump by the elites only strengthen his bond with his followers. I think that's absolutely right. But how do you decouple Trump from his followers when when that dynamic exists?
1: I don't know that you do. I mean, I I don't think people should stop being critical of Trump when he does the things that he does. And I, I mean, the fact that people... On the other side, uh, take some glee in those attacks. Well, there's really nothing you can do about it. Look, at the end of the day, unfortunately, this is a political slash power struggle. There is only so much you can do to change people's minds. And that's why I am hoping and praying that some Republican senators will use the power that they do have to sort of pick up the flag and start running in the other direction instead of this great retreat that we've had. Now, in my view, that will have more effect on people's decision making than any speech or explanation or moratorium on attacks on Trump or whatever, whatever you might want to do, because if those Republicans can stand up and say, look, uh, we have decided to place the security of our democracy as our highest priority. We're not getting into what the infrastructure bill should be. We're not getting into uh, all these other issues. But on this issue, we have to stand clearly. I don't rule out the possibility that they will be able to peel off some people who haven't heard anybody that they respect make that argument. You know, I've heard many people who are not pro-Trump, but, but are you know, don't like Biden and the Democrats say, but I do like Ben Sass and I do like Mitt Romney. So if, if one of those guys actually got up and, and showed some real leadership, I think they would find some followers. Now, they wouldn't take over the Republican Party. I don't think that's in the cards, but they might get enough to really shift the, the sort of political structure uh, that we're living with right now in a more beneficial direction.
0: You write in the essay that it would be foolish to imagine that the violence of January 6th was an aberration that will not be repeated because Trump supporters see those events as a patriotic defense of the nation. There's every reason to expect more such episodes. How do we prevent another January 6th?
1: Certainly a start is to pass the necessary legislation to protect elections, to legislate about the the voting recount act of 1877 and, and to take measures to protect election workers. And, and also I think it would be good to reestablish from Congress's point of view, what the Supreme court vitiated in terms of the voting rights act, which was whether you can hold certain States in a kind of suspect. uh, If they change voting rules, they, they should get some kind of scrutiny. Now, is this going to change everything no but but uh, i think if if congress can get down on record on these things among other things it will affect the way the courts deal with challenges that come up in 2024
0: there is this sort of effort to create some intellectual foundation to justify trumpism and the ongoing threat that he represents to the republic and democracy how do conservatives address that is, is there any hope that conservative intellectuals will sort of reemerge or is is the temptation of power so corrupting for what's left of, of most of the people in that that movement that was very ideas driven in the 90s and in so many other eras
1: there has always been competing strains in conservatism and To put it in a simplistic fashion, there is the conservatism that was aimed at conserving liberalism, if if that makes sense, which is to say aimed at conserving the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution against what conservatives regarded as a liberal progressive assault on those, which is one fight, and you could take either side of that fight that you want, but it is a fight about the same thing. It is a fight about what is the best form of liberalism. But there was always a competing tradition in conservatism, which I think can be traced basically back to, um, pretty much back to the slavery issue, and then to the southern agrarians of the early 20th century. And that is, and which we're seeing now more and more coming out of mainstream conservatives, which is the idea that America was created, that American democracy was created by and for a particular culture, the Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. And that that, uh, I recently read a piece uh, in the American Conservative where uh, they were criticizing my suggestion that the founders meant uh, the principles of declaration to be universal as opposed to for them and their posterity. Um, and so this is where this whole conservative nationalist idea comes from: is that what is American nationalism? It's either a creedal nationalism based on a common acceptance of an idea, or it's a racial nationalism. Those are the only choices. And I and this sort of and what we're seeing now is a more uh, forthright uh, uh, statement on behalf of this racial nationalism or ethnic nationalism or cultural nationalism, whatever you want to call it. To my mind, that always used to be a fringe part of conservatism, the kind that we didn't, you know, polite company didn't talk about. Uh, Now I think it's become very mainstream. That's why I say in the piece, I'm not sure that conservatism ever was actually in sync with the American creed. But certainly today, there's reason to doubt it, and the thing that I'm most uh, sort of surprised by is how little pushback there has been from other conservative intellectuals who clearly can't believe that. Um, the only ones who've pushed back are the ones that have already clearly said, "I'm out. I'm not supporting. The, I can't support the Republican Party anymore." You know, but for those who are still inside the tent, so to speak, they're not having an argument with these conservative nationalists. It's just, it's just a vacuum. <laughs>
0: Robert Kagan, thank you so much for taking the time to join our
1: podcast. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: A Pew Research Center poll published Wednesday showed two-thirds of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents say they would like to see Trump continue to be a major political figure for many years to come. Meanwhile, former Vice President Mike Pence said on Fox News this week that continuing to talk about the January 6th insurrection is meant to demean millions of Trump supporters, even though Many of those who stormed the Capitol that day were shouting, Hang Mike Pence. It's a reminder of Trump's grip on the GOP. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Allison Michaels, Renita Jablonski, and Michael Duffy. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can find the link to Kagan's essay in our show notes. And if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to The Washington Post. You can get a great deal at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another edition of Please Go On, because there's always more to say.